Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Have you guys ever been to one of those movies where you don't know the plot? And you just turn up to the movie and you don't know the plot and then you get about 20 minutes into the movie and you're thinking, what have I gotten myself in for? Uh, it happened to me recently with that movie Lion. Has anyone seen Lion? I had no idea what the plot was, but don't worry, no spoiler alerts this morning. Other than to say, I got 10 minutes into that movie and I didn't know whether to stay or to leave. And you feel that feeling where you're like, I just thought to myself, I've just got to... I've got to go through the discipline of this. I've got to sit through this thing. It was so uncomfortable. I just got to, I've got to sit through this, and, and I've got to say it was one of the most profoundly soul-changing movies I've seen in a couple of years. And so it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? When you go through that discipline of discomfort, is often those times, those movies, those stories, they're the ones that change you. And you know what? This this was exactly the same dynamic for this passage this week. Because I don't know about you, here's how I've been approaching this series of Encountering God. Probably like most people, I've been thinking, oh, it's a great idea, let's do a series on Encountering God. And, and I thought it'd be really good, we could work out, let's work out the disciplines that give you goosebumps. Yeah, let's work out how God speaks to you, how God, God gives you a wonderful feeling, that supernatural power to overcome life. And, and suddenly I run smack into a passage like this. And there are times for me as, uh, as your pastor where I, I, I hear the word of God and I, I go, I don't want to preach this. Not now, that wasn't the plan. And, and it was really funny. God spoke to me in all of this and, and he said, Sam, I'm not a figment of your spreadsheet. <laughs> so as much as I don't want to do this this morning, what you can be assured of is you, you're going to get the God of the Bible. And I just want to be faithful in that in relaying the God of the Bible, because when we look at this story, it's not a comfortable story. And some of you might get 10 minutes into this, and you're going to work out whether you want to stay or whether you want to go. And I want to encourage you to go through that discipline of discomfort, like I did with Lion. Today we look at Job. Job and his story, man, you guys are getting your money's worth out of me this morning. 38 chapters, 42 chapters. I've had to summarise. Here goes the story. If you know, Job, there's this great little wager that's happening between God and Satan, a fallen angel. And it's the question that will hang over the whole passage. It's a question that will hang over you and me this morning as we encounter this. Satan tests God. He says, you know what? Does Job love you for you? Does he really love you for you? Let's have a little wager. He says, the way I'm going to work this out, Lord, is give me Job. Let me rip everything from him and let's see. And so what you see is God unfolding a little bit of the leash, just bit by bit. And we have the first part of the story where it comes in and, and Satan is allowed to attack Job, but God says, I'll let you do this, but not that. Goes in and as the story goes, Job's standing there at home, a messenger comes up and says, all your cattle are gone. And then another servant comes up and says, all, all your um, livestock is gone, all the farm is gone. Then another one comes up and says, all the family is gone. And then to make things worse on top of that, they keep going through the wager. God says, yep, you can do this, Satan, but only this much. You can do this, keeps letting the rope out in Satan. And says you can go and do a little bit more. And then Job's health gets attacked. He's literally sitting in ashes, scraping the sores of his pass off. No livestock, no home, no family. His wife and his kids gone. Now his health is gone. And he's reduced to this solo, lonely man scraping pus from his skin. And so then from there on in, you know, chapter 3 to 33, there's this massive argument that ensues between him and a bunch of dodgy friends. 
And at the end that we read from, it's somehow the story ends, my ears heard of you, but now I see you. Now the summary of all of that is that Job goes through this incredible suffering and he encounters God. And here's what I want to preach this morning, that one of the main ways that you encounter God is through suffering. I really wrestle with this. It's like if you heard of, did you hear of that guy up in the Gold Coast, the celebrity chef, Matt Galinsky? Will you hear his story? He goes to bed on Christmas night. And as he's sleeping next to his wife, his three little girls have obviously had all the presents and paper strewn everywhere from the Christmas day that had been. They smelt something. And they ran out and the Christmas tree lights had caught on fire. And so his wife rushes back down the hall in order to go get the twins and their youngest daughter. And, and the fire is so ferocious that by the time it hits, uh, his wife is trapped in there and he runs out of the house and he runs back in desperately to save his wife and his three little girls and he's burnt to 80% of his body and he comes out of the house, he collapses and he's so badly burnt that he awakes from a coma months later and someone has to break the news to him that on Christmas Day... Because of a set of dodgy lights, he's lost his wife and his three precious little girls. How's that fair? And here's the thing that's bugged me about this passage. If I can use Galinsky as an example, here's, here's what bugs me if we substitute him as a modern day Job. is the way that God treats him. The way that God treats Matt. This is like Matt waking up at the end of his coma after eight months. And he sees God at the end of his bed. It's like, thank goodness you're here, Lord. And here's the thing that really bugs him. Not only does he not give him any comfort, but the Lord doesn't give him any answers. This is not how we expect God to come in. God shows up. Not only does he not give him an answer, more than that, he gives Matt a tongue lashing for an hour when he complains about his situation. This never seemed right to me. This is incongruent with the New Testament God of love. and This just does not seem right to me. And yet, the profound thing of this is that when this happens, Job is profoundly changed, right? What we see in this, this is why it's the God of the Bible, not a Sam spreadsheet, that we have God the confronter. God is a confronter. And so, of course, this sermon's about suffering. That's, just the, that's implied that you'll encounter God through suffering. But what do we learn from this? What do we learn about how we encounter God in this way? And I've got to say this morning, if, if you want to encounter God, this morning you need to, first of all, you need to be aware of your approach to God and to suffering. The second thing you'll need to do is you'll need to accept his argument. And the third thing is that you'll need to be transformed by his silence. Be aware of your approach, accept his argument, be transformed by his silence. First of all, you need to be aware of your approach to God in suffering. What we see here is two really wrong ways to approach God. Approaching God's like trying to land a plane. You know, a plane approach is is so precise, you've got to be on the right plane. And if you don't approach God in your suffering in the right way, you won't encounter him, first off. And we see here, Job chapter 2, verse 9. Here's the first wrong approach. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. So here's the first approach, what she's saying. The first approach to suffering is, it's God's fault. Blame him. And 
He then says to her, the very next verse, he says, well, you know, you are talking like a foolish woman. I love that. That's some great marriage advice in all of that. He says, you're acting like a foolish woman. He didn't say she's a foolish woman. He said, you're just acting like an idiot. You're not one, darling. <laughs> but Job gets it right. You're acting, curse gone by, that's foolish. Then you get the three mates, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and through all of their arguments for 30 chapters, Here's the summary of one of them, Job chapter 4, verse 7. Hey, Job, look, here's the thing. I've never seen an innocent man perish like you. Now, that's, can you see what a passive-aggressive slap in the face that is? What's he really saying? He's really saying that what, what some dodgy Christians say in churches when their friends and people are going through suffering. Are you ready for the line? There must be some sort of sin in your life, Right? That if you're going through, oh, you must have sinned somewhere. Like, I can't pick it because you've, you, you pray, you go to church, you're in connect group, you're doing the wiki church thing, all this stuff's happening for, hey, there must be something that you're not telling me. What's really going on? That's what Eliphaz is saying. The other approach is then blame yourself, right? Blame God, blame yourself. Here's where Job gets the trajectory right in the landing. He's absolutely on the runway. He's neither of these. He, he gets in and he says, oh, curse the day that I was born. <laughs> He's saying it's, it's, it's not God, it's not them, curse the way, way I'm born. They're saying, one saying hate God, the other saying hate me. One saying blame God, one saying blame you. Job goes right down the middle of the runway and he says, I curse the day I've been born and I've been cut off if I could just get in front of the guy. And here's why he's not 100% right, because chapter three, 23, verse 3, he says, If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him, and I would fill my mouth with arguments, and I would find out what he would answer me, and I would consider what he would have to say. <laughs> Anyone ever felt like that? Man, if I could get in front of him, I'm going I'm to give it to him. Ironically, Job is, is that, that verse there is actually really the turning point of modern day skepticism towards Christianity, if you want to know a bit of the history. Diomede McCulloch, the uh, professor of theology at Oxford University, uh, tells the story in his documentary in the history of Christianity out of the bar in which Christianity, uh, in which C.S. Lewis wrote a book called God in the Dock. And what he said is up until the 1700s, every member of society approached God as if they were approaching a judge. With a, a reverence and an awe and a respect. And there has been a turning point in the 17th century in the Enlightenment period in which C.S. Lewis says, now it's God in the dock. That our Enlightenment society has just built it into us that we now question him. If I would get in front of him, I would fill my mouth with words. I would hear his case, God's in the dock. So you've got to be really careful with your approach. What's your approach to God when suffering hits? It's the deep, modern person's struggle. It was Voltaire's struggle in the 17th century when he witnessed the great earthquake of Lisbon and he saw over 10,000 people die that night from fire and a tsunami and he kicked rise to modernism and the scepticism of Christianity back then for this reason. This is not right. The feeling we're all feeling. Hmm. Anyone want to leave yet? <laughs> it's like lying. You just got to hang, hang out. There's a... Second thing you've got to do, and this is why I'm going to take you even a little bit deeper, and it's even more uncomfortable than the hate we're feeling around us at the moment. 
here's, you've got to accept God's argument, not only the approach, but you've got to accept God's argument. And here's what he's responding to. It's, it's, the, it's actually it's a modern objection. We hear it all the time. The objection goes like this. It's on the screens. If there was an all-powerful and all-good God, he would never have let this happen. Therefore, since the Bible says that God is all-powerful and all-good, the, the God of the Bible can't exist. That's the objection, right? That's still around. And you know what? Here's the one place where we actually get God's rebuttal to that, <laughs> that objection. This is where God gets to answer back from the dock, if that's where he is. Chapter 38, verse 4. He said, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Oh, that is poetic, isn't it? But do you hear what, he, you hear what, he, what God's saying here? God's saying what the director in the movie Staying Alive sent to the, said to the New Yorker, Tony Monero, when he walked out of the dance rehearsal. He said, what do you ever do? What do you ever do that meant anything? <laughs> right? Monero was just a chump dancer. He'd been raised into the op ultimate opportunity for him to shine on the stage. The director is given that chance. Monero is about to walk out on it. And the director said, what do you ever do? You've done nothing. That's what God's saying. It's blunt and it's, it's the confronter. When we're lifted up into this, God says, what do you ever do? Verse 38, verse 2. Who is this? I love this one. Who is this that darkens my plans with words without knowledge? What do you know? You're tightening my plan with words without knowledge. You know, it's a bit like, it's a, bit like a seven-year-old going out to the control panel of NASA at Cape Canaveral out there as they're about to launch a space shuttle and waltzes into the room to the mission director and he says, that's never going to fly. And for that, for that split second, the, the mission director turns to the seven-year-old. You know, he's, he's a professor of jet propulsion and physics. And he says, well, you know, if you understand that if you... And he catches himself halfway through and says, no... Sit down. You're a seven-year-old. I'm a physicist. <laughs> I'm not even going to waste my time explaining. Who is this that, that darkens my plans without knowledge? <laughs> right? We laugh, but we do it, don't we, church? In those times of pain, I can't see what the reason is for this suffering that I'm going through, Lord. You can't exist. And here's the point. Look, if you have a God who is big enough for you to get mad at because of suffering in the world, then doesn't that mean he's a God who's big enough to have reasons for that suffering that you can't understand? And I say that again, if, you, if you've got a God that you, it's, he's big enough for you to get mad at because suffering is in the world, could it be then also that you have a God in front of you who's big enough to have reasons that you just don't understand? Just because you can't think of a reason for the suffering that you're going through, does that mean there isn't one? Yeah, we do that too. You've got to accept God's argument. <laughs> now, is this hard? Yeah, it's hard. Of course it's hard. It's incredibly hard. It's a Christian wrestle. 
you're not going to work this out in a sermon here. You're going to do it in tears at home, in my office, as we work this through with friends in your connect group. But the lesson here is either there is no God and you can't complain about it, or there is a God who is the creator of this universe and is beyond it, and we are just darkening his plans without knowledge. We've got to wrestle through that. That's tough. But you, you've, got to accept his, you've got to accept his argument. Here's the third thing that you need to do if you want to encounter him. Notice all of this is still like landing, by the way. You, you've, you've got to get through each if you want to get to the next. So we're, we're, about, we're about to land here in the depths of how you work through suffering and get to the point where you encounter God. You know, what is really significant is when you look at what, not only what God says in his arguments, but what God doesn't say. What is fascinating in all of this is that God actually shows up. He has a meeting. He shows up. They have a big discussion. But God doesn't give Job the reason for his suffering, which is really interesting because let's go back to it. Class, we know the reason, don't we? Class, chapter 1, verse 9. It's the whole wager that I said was going to hang over this thing. The whole reason for the suffering was this. Does Job love me for me? And the trick of all of this, and, and this is how I've suddenly realized how I wrestle with these moments in my life where there is not, where I want a reason and God doesn't seem to be giving me a reason for the hardship and the suffering that happens when it happens. Here's, here's what I realized and what I want to show you. If the big question is, does Job show you for you? Does he serve you for you, God? If that's Satan's big question, it's not that God doesn't want to show Job the reason. It's that God can't show Job the reason. And here's why. Like I've, I've had people say to me, you know, if I could just understand why God is putting me through this, then maybe, maybe yeah, look, I could worship him and I, I could hang in there with all of this. Or here's another way to phrase it. You, you know, when we have those moments with friends and we pray with them, and we say, you know what, just, just hang in there because one day there's going to be a glory out of this and God's going to make sense of all of this. And what hit me is I, I've... I've said those phrases before at the back of the auditorium. And in light of this passage, God said to me, hang on, what if I never show them the answer? Because I never showed Job the answer. And I'm like, well, why? What? Hang on, how does that work? What is that, God? And here's, here's how it hit me. I realized that if we are to know the answer or the reason for our suffering at times, could it be that our hope is placed in the reason for our suffering and not in God himself? Can you see how it works? That if God had have shared Job chapter 1 verse 9, the whole little wager that was going up there in heaven with Satan to Job, Job would have placed his trust and his love in the reason and not in God himself. And the whole wager would have been wasted. Friend, I don't know with some of the suffering that you're going through, I don't know whether God will ever give you an answer. This is the deep, deep wrestle. I said, you've got to land this. You know, this, is, this is suffering 301, by the way. There's 101, 201, 301. This is third year university suffering at this point. It's, I don't know that he will ever necessarily give you the reason, but the whole point is this. You can't become the sort of person that loves God for God if you've got a reason. The whole point of this is to get Job to a point where God just having you is enough. 
What it's meant for me is I suddenly realized all of these, all of these good things in my life, if we dare you and I to, to draw out the extrapolation of, of what God is showing Job here in all of this, Job understood this when he said, he didn't understand how profound the theological statement was that he said, when he said, hey, into the world I came naked and to the grave I go naked. What Job was saying is in this ark that is your lifetime, all of the good things, all of the wonderful things, your home, the kids, the family, the laughter, the joy, the reason Job had a resource in all of that is he understood that all of this was on loan. And he said, I'm going to you, Lord, empty. And it was in the midst of that moment that he said, it is killing me. It is crushing me that I've lost my wife and my family. But they were a gift from you, Father. And to go to you is enough. I don't want to think that out. I don't want to think that out as I hug my kids. But Christians live with a resource to, um, to move beyond the denials of a veiled stoicism that says when we lose our little ones and when we lose our loved ones, oh, I'm just praising Jesus. And we smile. And at the other end, like non-Christians, we're, we're not in denial and that we understand that these good things and these beautiful things are from him and yet they're on loan. We don't cut ourselves off from the joy and the pain and the beauty. So it's not stoicism. It's not a wishful thinking. Can you see, until suffering comes into your life only, will you know that you are serving God in the purest of forms? We see that in Job. And how does he get to that point where he accepts him for him? It's in the wonderful storm. In chapter 9, verse 17, Job says, I'm actually afraid if God shows up, he'll crush me as a storm. The word there was a whirlwind or a hurricane. You know, a hurricane is something like 10,000 nuclear bombs worth of power. That's what he was talking of this God. I'm afraid I'm going to meet him because he's going to turn up like 10,000 nuclear bombs and I'm afraid that he's going to crush me here. And when he does encounter God and God speaks out of the storm, chapter 38 verse 1, it is profound. When he speaks out of it, it says Yahweh spoke out of the storm. And what is fascinating is that they don't use the word Elohim for God, which was traditionally used and in fact, it's a different name for God than they use for God when he's speaking to Satan. When God speaks to Satan, it's a word used to reflect a superior speaking to a subordinate. But when they use the word Yahweh, we have a picture of a friend speaking to a friend. And suddenly the whirlwind, the one of which he's got all this angst against, the one that he's going to give it to in the dock, comes to him in a 10,000 nuclear bomb whirlwind and he says, friend. Friend, And it's that moment that Job says, if I'm right with you, then all is right. Ever had that with a friend? Ever had that with a friend where you've, you've, there's both been so much pain with each other that you, you fantasize all the things that you're going to say to them when you eventually get in front of them? And then you get in front of them, something supernatural in that love says, no, I love you too much that forget all that. It dissolves and you just want them. That's what we see in Job when he moves to that encounter. And as we finish this morning, there's a fascinating line that God says to Job in all of this. 
God says, verse 8, do you see the place um, where, where God says in here, must I be condemned that you be justified? In other words, in your earthly thinking, Job, do you have to put me down? Do you have to put me into the dock like all the skeptics of Christianity still do today? Must I be condemned for you to feel right? And what's, what's interesting in the micro, Job got the answer to that and, and he went, you know what? Yeah, I'm just going to shut my mouth. <laughs> I'm just going to stop talking. <laughs> but in the macro, the truth is, yes, he has to be condemned. There is, a, there is a, a moment in which, as history fast forwards itself, that a hurricane force would come down upon an innocent sufferer. A hurricane force would come down upon an innocent man. A hurricane force would come down where he would lose everything, including his own life. And instead of encountering the God in the midst of all of that pressure and the whirlwind, he's not there. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God says, Job, you're just pointing to someone else. And there will be a time in which people will mock me. And we heard that in communion. And tear me down and make fun of me. And I'll be be condemned so that you can be made right and justified. As we finish this morning, I'm reminded of a story of a lady called Elizabeth Elliot. She was a missionary. I think she'd lost her husband. She'd gone on missionary work in a wild tribe in South America. And she'd done years and years of work, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of work with this tribe trying to translate the gospel. And in one moment, she put a, an incorrect injection of penicillin into one of the men in the tribe and he died. And as a result, she got chased out of there. And like 10, 15, 20 years worth of work disappeared in an instant. And when she came back, her superiors at theological college almost gave her the, uh, gave her the, the blame yourself line in all of that. Said, there must have been something that you did wrong. I can't imagine that God would destroy all of that work and it would amount to nothing. And here's what she said as she re- reconciled through that. If God was my accomplice, then yeah, he's betrayed me. Now in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he was merely the accomplice, he would have betrayed me. If on the other hand, he was God, he freed me. For God is God. And, he, and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. And I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. Is he your accomplice? And you can't even look at the sun without your eyes being burnt out. We, we look at a, a patch of the sky and we see that there's something like 10,000 galaxies and for every pixel on a digital camera that if we could zoom into that and see into that black spot, we would find that there's another 10,000 more. He did all that. And is this the sort of God that you ask into your life to be your accomplice? He is God, and if he is God, we will find rest. Elliot says to you, your God's too small, therefore you don't have rest. She says, I'll find rest in nothing but his will. Do you get this? Of course you don't get this. I don't get this. But hopefully we get a little bit more of this. And all we can pray is that he will work it into your life and my life this week. Let's pray. 
Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.